Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. Hello, everyone. Um, As chairman of Global Council, it's a great pleasure for me to extend a very warm welcome to everyone participating today, uh, especially our speakers. Uh, We have an exceptional uh, panel representing the foremost digital regulators in the UK. Um, I think it's a first. They've never, all four of them have not been on an event like this together before. And collectively, they formed the Digital Regulation Cooperation Forum, uh, which was established uh, last year and which we're going to explore today. Now, my, my aim is to tease out the sort of directions and tensions in digital regulation in the UK uh, and where are the limits and constraints uh, on cooperation between them. Uh, the tensions between regulation and self-regulation between the regulatory authorities and, and the government, uh, which only last week outlined uh, its deregulatory approach to tech policy. Um, Also between user privacy and user safety, between competition uh, and privacy, uh, between sectoral and um, cross-cutting regulation, uh, and between regulation and importantly, and innovation. Um, let, Let me start by asking about the forum itself. And Elizabeth, perhaps I can Uh, come to you, Elizabeth Denham. Um, Can you start by telling us why you decided to establish the Digital Regulation Cooperation Forum? I mean, what was the problem or the problems that you were trying to solve in creating it? Thank you. And thank you for inviting me to the Global Council event, Um, Peter. um, So what is the DRCF for? I think is is your question. And we created the DRCF because of the real world challenges and problems that we're facing right now. And I think there is an urgency to issues like disinformation, safety of children online, online trolling, and there's an epidemic of scams and fraud online. There's challenges to free and fair elections um, and threats to the security of our communication and our infrastructure. So we've worked together before bilaterally or trilaterally, but when we have in front of us the complexities of the digital economy, more complex than ever before, some of the players, larger companies than we've ever seen before, we have to regulate in ways we haven't before. And I think all of us know that the law and regulation often lag behind the kind of challenges and problems that that we face. So all of us felt that as digital regulators, as those who have pieces of the pie, we needed to innovate and use all of the tools in our toolboxes in ways that we haven't before. And that includes integration between some of our approaches, competition and and privacy. 
So the DRCF is not, it's not rocket science and the DRCF is not an end in itself. So as I said, we've always worked together, but what we needed was a more formal and systematic channel to integrate our work. And I think um, we had to actually work on our internal plumbing to make sure that we're maximizing the impact that we have in protecting citizens and supporting and assuring business. So it's all about coherent regulation. And DRCF is a real thing. It, with real resources, it's not a tea and sandwich club. So we've seconded each other's staff, we've unpacked each other's policy, um, our policy priorities, and so we're tackling some of those issues where there are tensions, as you have mentioned in, in your introduction. Okay, well, let's pick up the point about uh, business. Andrea, from the point of view of the CMA, how would you say that businesses participating in this event today uh, should think about the forum? How should they view its role? So uh, again, thanks, Peter, for organizing this event. I mean, I think it's it's very positive for business. In many ways, I think the UK uh, historically has been very good at mixing competition and regulation in a number of sectors. And I think the institutional design helps. Uh, and we and the regulators have worked together uh, over the years on many matters. Now, this is a new area. Lots of things are changing fast. It's complicated. There is a lot of new regulation and legislation coming in. So I personally think it's very reassuring for businesses to know that the key regulators are working closely together so that whatever comes in, both in terms of legislation and regulation, both in terms of investigations by us or others, is done in a fairly holistic way by taking all of the various considerations into account. But you know, one person's holistic approach, Andrea, is another person's increase in regulatory burdens and pressures. Isn't that really what's coming business's way? I mean, I, you know, I think the reality is that this is a sector that is unregulated in the sense that things have happened very quickly commercially. And as Elizabeth has just said, we know time and again through history that legislation and regulation lacks uh, some of these uh, commercial developments. And so, you know, at the end of the day, what we are in the business of all of us is outcomes, is acceptable outcomes for consumers. And, you know, we're having this conversation on a Tuesday afternoon after everything we've seen on the Sunday night. So I think it would be very difficult to argue that this is a sector where things are today in the right place in the UK or in other countries. So for me, the question is not, you know, a regulation or new regulation is bad for business. It's about what is the right regulation? How can we get to the right outcomes so that both businesses and consumers can, um, you know, expand, develop, compete in the right way going forward? Okay. Melanie, can I ask you, though, um, given your all your government experience and our direct experience with Ofcom, isn't the creation of the forum a reflection, really, of the fact that digital regulation in the UK is actually not streamlined enough? Um, I mean, wouldn't we be 
uh, better off creating a single digital super regulator and cut through everything in that way? Well, I think we would need to be doing something like this, whatever the uh, infrastructure and geography of the regulators, uh, in fact. And, and actually, I don't support the idea of a single digital regulator, simply because digital technologies are actually disrupting every sector of the economy now. And digital business models are, are, are coming in and, and, and challenging the incumbents. And that, of course, has been amazing for, for, for you know, productivity and innovation and also for consumers. We've got amazing new services. But I think as we then look at the challenges that that brings, you're always going to need the cross-cutting whole economy regulators like the CMA and the ICO. Um, and I think alongside that, the deeper sectoral expertise of Ofcom um, and the FCA. And, and, and I feel that bringing us together allows us to pool our expertise and our thinking and deal with some things together rather than separately, cutting our own work down, but also improving our engagement with, with, with industry and avoiding in this area where we've all got to move quite fast, because as Andrea said, we're catching up here as regulators, um, not just in the UK, but, but in other countries as well. Um, and so I think working together maximizes our chance of getting it right. Okay. Nikhil, from a financial services point of view, um, do you think that, that your sector um, is represented sufficiently or that you have enough in common, as it were, with other regulators to collaborate in the way that's being proposed? I mean, talk us through what you hope to gain from this particular cross-cutting initiative. Like Elizabeth Melny and Andrea said, I think the speed with which digital technologies are changing our sectors means that um, the only real solution is to work together in a in a cooperative forum, and we've been a member, the FCA that is, of the DRCF since um, uh, April this year, having been an observer beforehand. We've seen in other fora where you've got quite complex, uh, multifaceted issues. For example, economic crime. We have the National Economic Crime Centre where we work with a number of other partners um, there, um, all using our different powers um, to try to deal with a common problem. We've seen very rapid um, increase in um, retail digital financial services, um, particularly during the pandemic, which hasn't all retreated as the lockdown restrictions have eased. We're seeing big technology entering into um, the payment sector. We're seeing robo-advice uh, for uh, financial services provision. We're seeing greater use of artificial intelligence um, by firms. Um, and this is going to be absolutely central to just about everybody every major financial services business. So what we hope to get out of the DRCF is being able to find common policy solutions and sharing our regulatory tools so that sharing information so we can try and solve those problems um, collectively. Can I pick you up though about what you said uh, in respect of big tech sort of parachuting into or sort of crashing into the financial services uh, market? I mean, you've got the prospect of actually really quite large tech firms, you know, coming into financial services, payments, you've said, but in other ways as well. Do you really think you have the framework in place to regulate them properly uh, and fairly uh, compared to incumbents who don't have their firepower as big technology companies? Well, we, we have powers across a range of domains. So we've got uh, objectives for consumer protection, market integrity, and also importantly, competition. Um, some, some powers shared concurrently with um, Andrea and colleagues uh, at the CMA. Uh, and where 
big tech companies are entering what you might call conventional financial services. They have to meet all the standards um, that um, apply. Clearly, that we're also learning um, in this area. And where we believe there may be new areas or new points of vulnerability where we need to have a conversation with colleagues in this forum, but also with the government about how um, the framework should evolve, we'll do that. I mean, I think one area where we, we know there's um, significant, significant importance to the economy is, for example, in the area of cloud, um, where you have a few small providers providing cloud services across the economy, their resilience um, matters to many sectors is of critical importance. Okay, let me uh, take a few moments, if I may, just to move on to online harms and the online safety bill. Not, not the detail and timing of what the government has proposed, but you know, your philosophical approach, all of you, towards regulating this space. I mean, it's obviously timely given the racial abuse that, have poured, that poured onto social media platforms, targeting members of the England football uh, squad the other day. How much online harm do you think is down to personal responsibility uh, versus the action that platforms themselves should be taking directly to curb it? Where does the balance between personal and sort of platform responsibility lie? I mean, it strikes me that there is a balance to be struck uh, between upholding people's privacy online, for example, in private messaging um or in closed groups uh, online um and on the other hand the need to monitor and moderate harmful and hateful content that arises and potentially spreads out uh, from these groups i mean is is that a viable fault line melanie perhaps i could ask you first of all do you <clears throat> agree that there is a trade-off here privacy and user safety i mean how do you think we should approach and prioritize uh, the trade-offs involved yes well look, there is a trade-off there are multiple trade-offs once we start to get into quite how we're going to regulate from ofcom and that's one of the reasons for the dlcf is so that we can explore those with our fellow regulators and and see things from their perspective and and privacy uh you know and the ico's perspective uh is incredibly important to sort of balance against um, the needs to improve safety online. I mean, in answer to your question, you know, what, what's the balance? I mean, it's clearly a mix of individual responsibility. Um, and I think we've seen over the last few days that actually the leadership of Gareth Southgate and the England team can be very effective in getting people to, you know, giving everybody a bit of a wake up call, actually. Um, and I can only really salute what they've, what they've done in that respect. Um, but at the same time, the platforms have facilitated behaviours, which I think, you know, none of us are very proud of, actually. I mean, some of this is criminal behaviour. It's things like child sexual exploitation. Um, and that needs a very steely-eyed um, uh, and extremely joined-up approach to, to try to, to clamp down on it. But some of it is actually about, you know, all of us as ordinary members of the public, uh, maybe, you know, thinking a bit about our behaviours, but about the platforms um, not facilitating that and not creating the kinds of echo chambers and amplifying, you know, abuse and, and, and problematic content online. So this is one of the trade-offs. I mean, I think the key for me about this regime is that um, 
these platforms have grown over the last few years at an extraordinary pace and they are doing a lot of things already to try to control some of these issues but it's not transparent it's not consistent and there isn't any real accountability and the online safety bill will change that it will, will require the platforms to do risk assessments to be public about what they're doing to mitigate the risks they find and to be very transparent about the outcomes and it will require the regulator to publish uh, our assessment as well which i very much welcome so that that's the big step forward here so you think they need a shake-up? I mean, given that we're not always going to have Gareth Southgate riding, you know, over the hill and and standing up for people in the way that he's done so magnificently. I mean, do you really think that? Do you really think the the platforms are are really getting clear idea and sense of what the public expect from them and the sort of a responsibility they should be showing? Well, they have change things. I mean, they've all taken steps to uh, to deal with um, problematic content and, um, you know, they're innovating all the time. And and I think, you know, they are the ones who understand their own technology and their own products and their services and how they're put together. And I think the key thing is to hold them to account for how they are assessing risk, what they're doing to address it and what the impact of that has been. And that's at the core of this new regime. And it's a, you know, it is, I mean, there are other countries in this space, Australia and the European Union, of course, as well. But, you know, we are going to be amongst the first to start to shine that spotlight on what's going on. And without that, I just don't think you can really create the incentives for, for real change um, in how services are run. So how do you do then deal with encryption, uh, Melanie? I mean, how can Ofcom possibly do its job as an online arms regulator when it cannot can't even access encrypted services to see what content is being shared. Well, look, this is one of the this is one of the really hard trade-offs, to be honest. And and you know, and Elizabeth's uh, again, this is another very good example of where we need to work with the ICO because there are some benefits to encryption, clearly, from the point of view of, of privacy. But if it prevents platforms from knowing what's going on, then it will be difficult for them to answer the question that the online safety bill requires them to answer, which is what are the risks on your platform? What is the prevalence of things like child sexual exploitation material, which is obviously horrific terrorist content. And there are technical solutions that are emerging to this that can live with end-to-end -end encryption. But you know, if platforms have made choices like that, depending on their approach, for example, to things like anonymity, that will drive a different balance of risk. And the onus has got to be on them, I think, to understand that and to be transparent about what they're doing about it. But end-to-end -end encryption is definitely one of the difficult trade-offs here. Okay, Elizabeth, what's your view of this? I mean, you're the privacy regulator. How do you intend to work with Ofcom on striking the right balance here? Well, I think in working with Ofcom and also, you know, competition. So Andrea, there are competition issues around end-to-end -end encryption and portability as well. So I think what they, where the DRCF is going to be at is really unpacking these issues, Peter, so that we can better advise the policymakers and they can square the circle. So I recommend, I obviously, recognize the importance of end-to-end -end encryption to even protect kids online. But um, I also recognize the danger. I recognize the interest in uh, more content moderation and, and law enforcement. Um, so it's a complex question. And I think the role for the DRCF and my role is helping to articulate where the trade-offs and where the balance should be. 
Um, it's not my job to endorse or to recommend banning certain technologies. That's, that's not my role. But looking at the deployment of end-to-end -end encryption is, is a really important part of, of my role. So I don't see end-to-end -end encryption as anything but a noisy discussion um, between policymakers, but I think the DRCF can help um, articulate where we can get that balance right. And there are solutions. It, it's not a binary question, yes to end-to-end -to -end encryption or not. I think there are privacy-enhancing technologies that are going to help the platforms and the platform should be incentivized to explore those new technologies, which find a, a better way forward. But on encryption, Andrea, perhaps I can just very quickly ask you, I mean, do you think that end-to-end -end encryption is consistent with a competitive market? I mean, given the difficulties it presents for consumers porting between different services? I mean, I think this is one of those areas where we're pretty happy to, um, you know, discuss matters with with Elizabeth, with Melanie, and others. In the sense that it feels to me the regulatory side, particularly when you think about online harms, is really, really important. So, you know, at the end of the day, what we're focused here is the overall outcome. Competition is one of the levers to get there, but I wouldn't think that this is in this particular area is probably the main consideration you want to apply. Let me let me just take this further with, with you and Nikhil then in, in, in relation to market structure and regulation. I mean, there's a question of whether we're just, I don't know, just sort of smoothing the rough edges of some of these big online platforms. Uh, and I know that, you know, some have argued, I mean, the Lords, uh, my colleagues in the Lords in the Communications and Digital Committee uh, have argued that what is actually needed is a more fundamental uh, overhaul of the economics of the sector um, and the business uh, model of platforms. Nico, let me come to you first and then to Andrea. I mean, so you've been quite outspoken about the need for more intervention uh, on the issue of online fraud and economic harms. You mentioned it before. How will the FCA and the forum seek to regulate online platforms to tackle uh, this issue? I mean, do you really think you've got the instruments and the powers to do this? Uh, the, um, this is something that Elizabeth described earlier as an epidemic, um, epidemic of, of fraud online, scamming consumers, often vulnerable consumers out of substantial portions of their life savings. Uh, it's, um, and we've seen fraud is now the most reported crime in the country. And a major vector for that fraud is, is online. Um, we started on this journey and seemed to call it out and um, engaging with the major platforms to encourage them to change their policies. Um, you, you asked a question earlier around the balance between individual responsibility and education and responsibility on the, on the platforms. Of course, education is important. We've got marketing campaigns which we're launching to make sure people are aware. But what, what, what I don't think is a sustainable business model is for platforms to allow illegal activity to scale at pace um, um, using their platform when they can invest in the tools they need to to be able to sort those out. Now, 
we've, there's also been work which has been underway to, to look at the legal framework. And as we've left the EU, there are some exemptions that have fallen away that we can take action on. You mentioned the online safety bill. We think online advertising should be in there. And we are having a conversation now, and Google have, have made some important steps where there is a recognition that um, regulation should, of course, be digital savvy, digitally savvy, but sometimes the business model needs to change as well. Um, and I think getting this forum can help us have some of those really gritty um, conversations as to where we need to adjust, but also sometimes where the firms need to think from first principles about their, about their operating model and principles. Okay. And you think you could get into a proper informed dialogue with these companies about their business model? Do you have the firepower behind you to be taken seriously by them? I think we are, um, we're taking a fairly um, sensible approach here in the UK, but I, do, I certainly think, I mean, we've been very clear, we think online advertising should be in the online safety bill. We think some legislative ballast behind us on that particular issue would make a, um, a significant difference. But like you said at the start, Peter, it's a matter now for um, government and parliament to, to decide. Okay. Andrea, let me come to you because you've, you know, you've got a very big role. You're a big influencer here. I mean, when we were still part of the European Union, it was DG Comp and Margareta Vestaya who were feared in Silicon Valley. Um, since Brexit, I think it's fair to say that the CMA has been as assertive, possibly even more so, um, and I know that you're now even coordinating investigations into Facebook, actually with the Commission. I mean, let me sort of just be devil's advocate here for a moment. I mean, for advocates of global Britain, where does the Brexit dividend uh, lay exactly in the CMA's more muscular uh, approach that you're adopting towards the tech companies? I mean, Post-Brexit, might we have expected a, a lighter touch from you in the first instance to see how it goes rather than, you know, asserting yourself in the way that you're doing? Well, I would argue it's kind of the opposite in my mind. So, I mean, I, you know, I receive probably every two or three days uh, well-reasoned complaints from British businesses who have problems with uh, one or other of the big platforms. So this is real consumer detriment today in the UK market. And the UK, I mean, is you know, a sizable market in global terms. I mean, I really would not expect anyone who has either voted Brexit to have remain or leave to expect us just to do nothing and wait and, and what and hope that either the US agency or the European Commission would do something which would improve things in the UK. So I think, you know, we are, we're focused on outcomes for UK consumers. And quite interestingly, if you look at what's happening right now, you have the French Competition Authority, you have the German Competition Authority, you have the European Commission, you have the US agencies, you have the Australian Competition Authority, all taking uh, a leading role in specific areas. So what we are doing is essentially what the other key agencies globally are doing, which is a combination of talking to one another trying to assess whether it makes sense to do certain actions as part of an alliance, which is a bit what we did recently with the European Commission on the Facebook case uh, you, you mentioned. And in some other cases, we are monitoring what others are doing because we hope that the results will also then um, be positive for UK consumers. And in some areas like the recent uh, Google 
privacy sandbox that we are doing uh, very closely with Elizabeth and her colleagues, it just so happens that we are ahead of the curve. And so what's happening in the UK now is likely to have an impact in other countries. So there is an element of reciprocity there. I think it makes sense to me. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, UK consumers, I think, should be happy to see that uh, the UK Competition Authority is one of the international uh, leading authorities trying to sort out problems in this particular area for, for the benefit, benefit of UK consumers and, and businesses. Now, you're talking to the US authorities. I mean, President Biden's made some fairly tough appointments uh, recently. Where do you think uh, a US action and policy is heading and how... Uh, how regularly you, you, you see yourselves talking to them? So we talk to them very often. Uh, at the case team level, there are probably multiple calls every week uh, between my teams and the teams in the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice. We have quite a number of high-profile cases we're doing together. In terms of the leadership, uh, you know, I have a good relationship with some of the key people there. And, you know, it, it's clearly highly relevant. I mean, if the US agencies manage to achieve uh, lasting change in some of the practices we're worried about, it's a massive bonus for us and, and UK consumers because we then don't need to act directly. So it's partially uh, working together when, when appropriate and partially following closely what's happening. And, as you know very well, in this space, it's really now a combination of uh, efforts in, uh, well, in Parliament or in Congress and the Senate in the US and direct action by, by agencies with the existing mandates. And, and my, my sense is the current leadership in the US is planning to do both, is planning to use the existing legislation and their mandate to do what they think is right, but also, uh, as you know, there is this initiative by Senator Klobuchar in the US and there are ongoing discussions about potential changes in legislation, which are clearly of, of, of significant interest to the agencies there. And again, it has a direct impact on us. You know, we are right now working on big global mergers very closely with them and whether the US agencies are in a position to intervene or not on particular matters has a direct impact uh, on us as well. Can I just something that has, has been expressed to me actually quite quite regularly by medium-sized, smaller technology companies who perhaps don't have the capability, the capacity to deal with GDPR, online safety, and other you know, big pieces of legislation uh, coming onto the statute book. I mean, their, their view is that these actually risk locking in the competitive advantage of the larger players who have the know who can deal with these uh, pieces of legislation and in this sense may prove anti-competitive to new entrants. Does that worry you at all? Well I think again this is really one of the strengths of the forum because again we have lots of experience in this country about thinking about the, the, the smart regulation, the appropriate level of regulation and potentially different levels of regulation depending on the size of firms. I think Probably Nikhil spends a lot of his time thinking about that in financial services and banking. So I think we have a lot of experience about it. I think it's a valid concern, but I wouldn't um, then worry too much as long as you properly take that into account. You know, we need to have the right regulation in place in this space period, whether as part of putting the right regulation in place, we think about 
different categories of regulation in some areas just to make sure that also we keep this kind of dynamism and competition is something I think we all think about and also all of us would like to see, but in some cases might be easier to achieve than in others. So I think it's an empirical question, it's specific to the particular piece of regulation. I think the right conversations are happening and I think this type of forum is the ideal uh, the idea set up to actually do it in a in a sort of effective way. And you've also got big tech data in your sort of sites. I mean, do you think there's a risk that the CMA's plans to open up their data to competitors threatens user privacy? That that your 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 pro competition motivation might might clash with others' desire to protect the privacy. Uh, yeah, I mean, again, it, it's a bit the same. So it's something I would discuss extensively with Elizabeth. I mean, I think uh, all of us on this call know very well that, you know, that the traditional lobbying by incumbents in this type of area is about trying to paint any of these regulatory interventions as locking in some of these problems. In some cases, it's a valid concern, in other cases, less so. So I think, again, it's, uh, you know, it's certainly something important, something worth considering. But I wouldn't say there is a blanket concern that would stop us from intervening if that's the right, uh, the right thing to do. Okay, let me turn now to algorithms and artificial intelligence. I know that you've been looking closely at the use of algorithms and potential problems that, that uh, this can, this can uh, present. Given the centrality of algorithms from everything from price discovery to content curation to user moderation, let me explore with each of you how you're approaching this issue. Elizabeth, perhaps I can start with you. Um, recently, the Task Force on Innovation, Growth and Regulatory Reform, the, the Ian Duncan Smith exercise, uh, argued that the UK faces a choice um, uh, on AI between data protection and economic growth. Now, their, their report provided a range of recommendations, including removing provisions on automated uh, processing. Do you take this point? How far do you agree, if at all, that the GDPR is actually holding back economic growth that you can see as a trade-off between these two things? Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate that question, Peter, because any trading off of growth and innovation and data protection, I think that's a false dichotomy and I just don't buy it. So I think high data protection standards in law enforced proportionately by a risk-based regulator are what's going to support growth. And that particular recommendation in the report in Duncan Smith and others have, have published is about downgrading the kind of protections there are for citizens and consumers when decisions about their lives are being made by machines. And I think we all saw citizens in this country deeply concerned about the algorithm that was used to determine A-level results. So, I mean, I can't imagine there being an organization that wants to use data in innovative ways that shouldn't be responsible for thinking about the impact 
that their data processing has on people. So anyone who is using data is using algorithms and machine learning to make decisions about people, they're gonna to need to be transparent and there needs to be in law a way to challenge those decisions. And if you look at international treaties and international standards, they all contain, such as Convention 108, they contain provisions that are similar to the transparency and challenge provisions in our law. So I think in the UK, we have a huge advantage in that we've got a principles-based law with all of the modern conventions that were not taken just from the EU, but from the US, from the Asia Pacific, from Canada. So we've got the best of breed in our law right now. And I think that's gonna help trust-based growth and innovation in the digital economy. Yeah, you say best in class, but you don't think that the GDPR comes across to some uh, as a too rigid a straitjacket, that if it were more flexible, uh, for example, for smaller and medium-sized businesses and startups who simply don't have the resources to manage its myriad requirements. I mean, just going back to the point, competition point I put to Andrea, do you not think that if it were a little bit more flexible, it might operate more fairly in relation to, uh, to, to the smaller and medium-sized uh, businesses that just don't have that ability to navigate their way through it in the way that the bigger companies do? I don't think that GDPR is anti-competitive at all. I think the obligations in the GDPR scale up in line with data risk. So a small company that's not a data intensive company will have a program that doesn't look anything like the data protection program that needs to be in place for Google. So it's a risk-based uh, piece of legislation. I'm not afraid of challenges that come to the law. And I think if there are provisions in the law that are too prescriptive, or um, too detailed, then we would be comfortable with seeing those peeled away. But the principles and the provisions in the law are the most modern across our international partners and our international partners are gonna expect us to have strong data protection protections when we collect their own citizens' data. So I think the regulation is only going one direction, Peter and it's going towards higher standards. And GDPR is scalable to the level of data use that's in place in a company. Okay, I'm gonna come back to Melanie in a moment to raise issues to do with social media because this is, I can see bubbling away during this event, raising a lot of concern. Before I do, Andrea, can I ask you, do algorithms pose a problem from a com competition perspective? Um, and if so, what transparency or other regulatory measures are needed in response, in your view? Yeah, I mean, I think that the right way to think about algorithms, in my mind, is the fact that they are they're more and more relevant across more and more matters that come in front of us or in front of the, our fellow regulators. And I think trying to have the skills in-house to understand uh, the way algorithms work for some of these platforms is really one of the key reasons for the forum as well, because the reality is that there is a significant asymmetry in terms of 
uh, you know, just numbers and the skill set of people in the regulators versus uh, some of these, you know, data intensive companies. So what's happening to us is that some of the consumer protection work we are doing um, is about online platforms. It's about uh, complex algorithms that sit behind, uh, for instance, you know, fake reviews or some of the matters that we worry about. So we need to understand almost that as part of an investigation and as part of thinking through the remedies and the changes required, we need to understand deeply how the algorithms work. And the same is happening on some of our competition work. Sometimes we review mergers where the companies are essentially online platforms and algorithms are a key driver of what they do. So again, we need to understand exactly how they work to assess whether there is a problem with a particular acquisition or not. And the same uh, increasingly in antitrust cases. And we talked about the cases with uh, Facebook and Google and Apple that we're looking at. So it, it is an issue of, of, of skills, understanding, uh, potential monitoring. Uh, and personally, I think this is one of the areas where structurally we're always a bit behind the private sector. So even if by international standards in the UK, I think we're in a much better place than in most other jurisdictions. You know, we were the first ones who set up a very large data unit in the CMA. We have around 50 data scientists by now. Lots of people are talking to us about what we have done in this space over the last couple of years. I mean, the reality is, this is an area where we are absolutely catching up with what's happening very quickly, uh, at very significant scale uh, on the other side in the in the marketplace. Andre, you say you're catching up, but in the view of some, it's a bit slow, and that competitive damage is you know, because of algorithms it is happening now. Do you, do you think that the regulatory, the right regulatory approach, is still a bit too far off uh, for uh, for safety? Well, we have, you know, our strategy over the last couple of years has been to use our existing powers to, to the fullest extent possible, but also to be very clear publicly and with the government that we need this kind of pro-competitive regulatory regime, which is the digital markets unit. So, uh, you know, the government, we understand, we will consult shortly on some ideas and then potentially begin with the parliamentary process there. So. I think it's very important to bring in this sort of complementary uh, set of rules in terms of exanta regulation, because I think, again, this is an area where constant monitoring and the type of intelligent uh, regulatory oversight that Ofcom and FCA, for instance, have in their own sectors is exactly what is needed across the general economy. And right now, we're not able to do that vis-a-vis uh, -vis algorithms. We can only intervene ex post when we think potentially there is a problem. Okay, let me come then to financial services before I move on to Melanie on this. I mean, Nikhil, do you think that financial services or indeed other sectors, if, if that's your view, require a more specific approach to the regulation of AI? Um, or, or is the UK's sort of horizontal regime approach um, uh, better? Uh, has been as has been done with the regulation of uh, uh, data protection that applies to all industries. I mean, do you really feel that, given the sort of exposure to harm uh, and, and uh, uh, that algorithms uh, pose in the financial sector, there's not a more financial sector-specific approach that should be taken? I'm going to hedge my bets on this one, Peter. I think um, we will need uh, both. Um, so there are some 
certainly some horizontal principles which, which will apply. And we're doing work with the Bank of England, with Elizabeth and her team at the Information Commissioner's Office um, on data and artificial intelligence, which um, yeah, applies a bright across the economy. At the same time, we need to recognize that technology is used differently in different sectors. And we have um, a highly consumer facing um, sector um, and there are different harms that can be created. For example, when AI is used in pricing consumer lending or pricing certain types of um, insurance uh, products. Um, and therefore, not just uh, us in the UK, but also actually in the last re in recent weeks, our colleagues in the EU and the insurance authority have um, looked at specific guidelines for artificial intelligence in those um, specific um, sectors. Um, so I think we'll need a mix of the, the horizontal approach and something um, sectoral. We also need to make sure that in, within financial services, some of the principles of our, of, of our regulatory framework. So we're consulting right now on a duty of care uh, for consumers. And it was something that was requested of us in um, recent legislation. Um, we need to make sure that's a very digitally savvy consultation um, to make sure that the principles that we establish coming out of that um, uh, cater for um, these new technologies. Okay. Melanie, let me come to you because you will be very well aware that there's a great deal of public concern. Um, you know, that, al that the algorithms of social media platforms are creating echo chambers, promoting harmful content to users and pushing a certain type of, uh, of image or look, often with negative uh, impacts. I mean, for example, on body image or racial diversity. Don't we need to do more? Isn't this really now become quite a priority given the public's concern um, uh, in this whole area? So, look, I mean, of course, we are all, I think, right to be concerned that we don't yet know at the moment quite how algorithms are being used. But we all know that there are some really negative consequences in the way that you've described that flow fundamentally from the business models that have grown here, actually advertising based uh, business models, which um, you know, thrive on scale um, and on content being seen by as many people as possible. And that creates various sort of potential and real harms as you described. I mean, I think we have to go back and just say, look, what is an algorithm? Because it's not the algorithms per se that I think is the problem. An algorithm is a set of instructions given by a human being to a computer. And these days they are unbelievably complicated and sophisticated and extremely um, difficult for any of us to, to understand. But it's it goes back to what um, we've all, I think, been saying in different ways, you know, during this session, that what we need is a lot more transparency about how this is happening um, and how things are being used. And um, we also need as regulators more capacity to get under the bonnet. And the skills issues are incredibly important for us. Uh, we're actually bringing in this autumn somebody from Amazon who's actually developed products and really understands how data is used in one of the big platforms. And we're all going to need in our different organisations to bring in more of that kind of expertise. But at the same time, we're also going to be quite reliant on industry. And so Google's um, sort of laboratory they've set up in Dublin allows you to go in and engage with some of their algorithms and understand what's going on. Um, so in the end, I also think you know, to your question, do we need more horizontal rules here? I don't know. I think we all need to be going into these next few years with an open mind. 
we've got some pretty big tasks on hand in our individual regulators. DRCF is designed to you know, help us to power those and make them work well across our boundaries. But in another three or four years time, we might be sitting here clearer about where some of these trade-offs need to be made and Parliament may want to make them more clearly than, 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 than feels right today. So I think we have to, I think it's quite, that, that mindset's quite important of retaining flexibility and being open to the fact that we might need to move quite fast. And do you think uh, that you would have confidence and will to say, look, we've looked under the bonnet, there is greater transparency. Frankly, we don't like a lot of what we're seeing. We don't like the, the direction in which a lot of these uh, platforms are going in. Uh, we, we've got to look at the business models. We've got to actually question whether how their businesses are operating quite fundamentally are any longer compatible with the public interest. So, uh, look, I think what the online safety bill gives to the regulator, i.e. Ofcom, is the ability to um, make sure that platforms have carried out a risk assessment, that they've put in place actions which includes adapting their algorithms uh, in accordance with those risks, and that they are transparent, particularly the bigger platforms, about the impact of that and what overall is going on. And there are then circumstances in the legislation, but I think Parliament's going to want to get into the detail of this, to be honest, which do allow the regulator to intervene in a more crunchy way in certain circumstances. For example, there's, there's potential for certain technologies to be required to, uh, in order to be able to identify certain types of really harmful material. So I think we're going to need to debate, you know, and I think, as I said, I think Parliament's going to, to want to need to, to get into this about how far, how quick we want this regime to be in stepping in under the bonnet and how far we want that onus to lie on the platforms. I think myself, it's going to have to you know, start with a second. The transparency and accountability is the thing that's really missing at the moment. But we also need to make sure that when we need to act swiftly and say this is just not OK, that we've got the powers to be able to do that. And isn't the issue really going beyond individual harms and the algorithms and sometimes promoting clickbait misinformation? really quite corrosive to democratic discourse and public information? I think it goes back to, you know, what you were saying earlier about, you know, regulation can, of course, it can, it can damage innovation and growth. It's something that regulators absolutely ha have to have front of mind. And I think from Ofcom's perspective, we also need to have freedom of speech front of mind. That's a real driving force in our culture, actually, in Ofcom. And in fact, last week we published um, you know, our latest data on what we do on TV complaints. And, and we were really making the point that we only intervene when we need to. We look at every complaint, but we only intervene when we need to. And I think on online safety, again, we've got to remember that balance here as well. And, you know, um, but I do I do agree with you that there are there are potentially horizontal issues here about the use of algorithms that, that we may, you know, we may we may reflect on in a few years time that some of these boundary lines are clearer than than they feel today. But I just go back to the need for flexibility and an open mind and a, a sort of agile approach to this. The, the, the last issue I want to take touch on is age assurance. Elizabeth uh, and Melanie, in fact, I'm going to put this to, but Elizabeth first. Uh, the, the ICO's age appropriate design code states that it's not prescriptive about exactly what methods should be used to establish age. Um, and that it's up to platforms to determine what is appropriate 
to the risks. Elizabeth, are we not in danger of allowing too much latitude for companies to determine the rules for themselves? Isn't this another area uh, where we're possibly dragging our feet and being a little bit too permissive and giving too much latitude to the companies? Um, I think when it comes to age assurance, there's no off the shelf um, approved software that's going to work for all providers. There's no easy way forward um, and no technology that we can recommend that would have any kind of enduring power. But doing nothing, Peter, and sitting on our hands was not an option. So what we said was it's up to companies to determine the level of risks that they are providing for children and determine their age assurance methods accordingly. And I think what the positive part of that is that age assurance then will be, companies will be incentivized to actually design age assurance privacy by design solutions for in this space. And you know, just think, here's an example, and we've been talking about the post Euro 2020 um, on Twitter. So something innocuous like Twitter's Euro 2020 can veer from something that's very family oriented in terms of the content to something quite alarming, which is about racial abuse but child users are engaged in the excitement of the event and they're on Twitter, just the same as everyone else. But it's meaningless to classify that environment as one that's just for kids or just for adults. Just to be clear, even if you wanted to compel companies to use some prescribed age verification method, you couldn't because the technology, the software doesn't exist. I mean, do you, do you expect that technology, that software to be developed anytime soon or not? Uh, yes, we have seen some privacy by design solutions that are in train. And I also think the age appropriate design code will create the incentives for developers to come up with the solutions. We'll also be looking at third party accountability agents to be able to um, determine what is the what's the most appropriate way forward. So I know age assurance is hard, but we can't just put it in the, in the corner and wait until the brilliant solutions are out there. And we will be working closely with Melanie and her team on the online harms work so that we can make sure that we're joined up in terms of age appropriate design and online harms. And Melanie, you oversee obviously the age assurance rules applying to video sharing uh, platforms uh, and you'll apply the online safety bills provisions related to platforms access by or those that are going to be accessed by or likely to be accessed by children. Um, Elizabeth has said that the ICO has developed a, a separate series of rules on the age appropriation design code. How are businesses, particularly smaller firms, in your view, Melanie, supposed to navigate between these overlapping requirements? 
Well, this is this is why we have the DRCF. I mean, it's 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 one of the best examples I can think of actually about where we need to step in and just dig a bit deeper than we've done before in in joining up across our boundary. There's a lot of commonality in what Elizabeth and her team are trying to do and what Ofcom is trying to do here. And as Elizabeth was just drawing out, the the good thing is actually that the legislation. Uh, requires both of, both of us, rightly in my view, to take a risk-based approach rather than a rules-based, more prescriptive set of answers. Um, and if I can just kind of bring in the user perspective here as well, I, I think you know we need to recognise that, that that children are on social media platforms, whether we like it or not, and whether the platforms like it or not. So we've published research from Ofcom uh, a couple of weeks ago, which showed that 42% of eight to 12-year-olds are on TikTok, for example, even though 13 is the cutoff age. Um, and actually that, that um, a third of five-year-olds are regularly on social media. So children will be on these platforms. Um, and it isn't just about age gating and age verification. They'll be using their, their parents or their siblings' devices, or they'll just be going on and finding a way uh, to get on talking amongst their friends about how to get around the rules. So it is it is also about how content is managed. Um, and that's why I think a more holistic approach to this. And again, as I sort of keep saying, putting the onus on the platforms to understand the risks, understand who's using their platforms and put in you know, the appropriate measures around that is better than taking a, a more rules based um, approach. I, I can't imagine this event having taken place actually in a funny sort of way without COVID. I mean, it would, normally we would have been thinking about having to travel to a particular conference center and giving up an enormous amount of our time, getting everyone in the same room would have been incredibly challenging. But we've done it because, you know, we're doing so much digitally now and it's been a very successful event and we're going to be doing more and more. Our whole lives are going to be digital. Uh, and it's therefore a very good thing that we've got, uh, you know, four regulators who have displayed such amazing um, talent and insight and grasp and openness. I must say, as a former um, politician, you know, who has recruited regulators and introduced legislation creating frameworks uh, for new regulation, I must say I'm fantastically impressed. I'm actually quite uh, bowled over. Uh, that we have such a rational, reasonable Im implementation of legislation of policy uh, in such uh, well in such uh, capable hands. Um, I mean, we live in an area where regulators uh, are coming under huge pressure from new technology, from media, foreign powers, even politicians, um, you know, you're, you're dealing with a lot uh, as, as, uh, as regulators. And so my message to, you know, Elizabeth and Melanie and Nikhil and Andrea is uh, keep going. You know, you're acting very ably uh, in the public uh, interest. And, and thank you very much indeed uh, for doing that. Obviously, as a former business secretary whose passion is the future success and prosperity of the of the country's economy i am always there to put in a a bias in favor of innovation uh, but that doesn't mean to say a race to the bottom when it comes to regulation and i think you're navigating away your way through that very very ably 
On a personal note, let me thank the Global Council uh, team, uh, Conan, Carolina, and all those who are else who are sort of behind those Zoom curtains. Uh, you put on a tremendous uh, event. We had 500 people signing up for it. Uh, a, a few uh, uh, you know, who no doubt will go to our website and pick it up later, as we'll do hundreds of others. It's been a great success. So thank you all very much indeed for your time. For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.